Hi, I'm Ted Voltmer, one of the pastors here at the chapel. I'm glad you're here. On Christmas Day, Queen Elizabeth delivered her Christmas address to the people of England. She carried on a tradition handed down by her father and his father before him over 80 years ago. In 1939, King George VI, Elizabeth's father, is preparing his Christmas message. But he doesn't know what to say. Germany and Russia have already invaded Poland, and they've declared war against England and France. World War II is underway, and the people of England, his people, know that it's getting closer and closer. Soon their husbands and sons will be sent to fight, and many of them won't come back. As he's sitting there trying to write his speech, imagining what he can say to calm their fears and give them peace and hope this Christmas, the words just won't come. <clears throat> he's not even sure what to do as their leader, never mind what to tell them. Elizabeth, his teenage daughter, brings him a poem. Father, read this. I, I think it will help. And when King George addresses the nation that Christmas morning, this is what he reads. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God trod gladly into the night. And he led me towards the hills and the breaking of day in the lone east. Well, here we are standing at the gate of another year, and I think it's safe to say we're all glad to see this year behind us, right? Is anyone sad to see 2020 come to an end? Anyone thinking, you know, I don't mind wearing a mask and having to fog up my glasses so I can't see anything? No, I'm ready to move on. Seriously, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've aged five years in 2020. I don't think I've ever faced more stressful decisions and sleepless nights just back to back to back. Think back to this time last year. We were hearing talk about some new virus overseas, but we didn't think much of it then. If someone told us then that the way we go to school would completely change in 2020, that would have been a lot to process, right? If a year ago they said you probably wouldn't go to school every day and your prom and graduation would be canceled, you wouldn't have believed it. And parents, remember all that math you learned in fifth grade that you didn't think you needed? Well, welcome to homeschooling. That alone would be a lot to handle, but then if someone told us that our work would change, our whole routine, the commute, the office, everything changed, and some would lose their jobs altogether, well, that would be hard to deal with. And then if they told us that church would change and we wouldn't be able to gather on Sunday mornings or get together with our small groups, we'd all have to stay home and watch online. What is that about? Any one of these things, any one of these things would be hard enough to deal with, but they all happen at once. And now we're standing at the end of this long, long year trying to see what 2021 will bring. And we expect what? More of the same? It's got to get better, right? It can't get any worse. Please tell me it won't get any worse. What do you do then? What do you do when everything around you is turning upside down? When you're going through something you've never been through before, something you never saw coming, and now you can't even make sense of what is happening around you. How do you respond and move forward? 
Today we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. I was going through a very, very challenging time a few years ago when I heard Rick Warren preach on this. It really helped me then, and I want to share it with you today as we get ready to start a new year together. Let's jump into the passage, 2 Chronicles 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Now let's just pause there because it, it feels like we're coming into the middle of a movie or something. Here's the context. First, when it says, after this, Jehoshaphat, the king, had just set up a group of judges to help him rule over Judah. Israel as a nation had been divided in two, and Ahab was the king over Israel at this time, and Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah and a very godly man. Back in chapter 17, we're told more about him. Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. So that's important to remember because what, what's about to happen was not a punishment or the result of anything that Jehoshaphat did. So let's pick up those verses again. So the Moabites, Moabites the Ammonites, and the Meonites, they're about to wage war against Judah. Verse 2, some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. So this is one time where, where a map would help us picture the situation. So the kingdom of Judah is in blue on the lower left. <clears throat> and you can see Ammon, the home of the Ammonites, and Moab on the right side. And below Moab is Edom, where the Meonites are from. So Judah basically is surrounded. And these three armies had crossed over the Dead Sea and were camped in En Gedi, about 15 miles away from Jerusalem, where Jehoshaphat was. Verse 3, alarmed, you think? Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So verse 3 tells us that Jehoshaphat was alarmed. Other versions say he was afraid, and any one of us would be terrified and confused. What's happening, and, and how is this all happening at once? How did these three countries even get together to, to fight against us? He's trying to process the fact that there's three armies right outside in his backyard. But after Jehoshaphat takes a breath, his first reaction was to pray, to pray. He inquired of the Lord, and he didn't just pray. He told everyone to pray and fast with him. What's your first reaction when a crisis hits? Do you stop everything and pray, or do you just first try to figure out what to do or who to call or where to go? I think I'm probably 50-50 in this. About half the time, I know enough to stop and pray before doing anything else. But the other times, I jump in and just try to fix the situation myself. 
And I know where that comes from. It's just pride. I think I'm self-sufficient. I think I can handle the situation on my own, that I can figure things out before asking God to help. The Bible calls out pride, and it's a sin, and it only makes a bad situation worse every time. Dr. Henry Cloud is a psychologist and author, and he talks about how when we're faced with a situation that's beyond our control, our brain basically starts to shut down. And we all know what that feels like, right? It's the anxiety and stress and burnout, depression. We can't sleep or eat, or we're eating and sleeping too much. And those are just the physical reactions to feeling out of control. Emotionally, mentally, there's something else going on inside of us. We start to have this negative conversation with ourselves. And Dr. Cloud says that we go through the three Ps. The three Ps. First, we, we personalize it. I should have seen this coming. I should have prepared more. I should have worked harder I, or studied more. I should have spoken up. I should have done this. I should have done that. You're blaming yourself for something that's really not your fault. When you're faced with bad news like Jehoshaphat was, it's important to take it seriously. We can't ignore it, but you can't take it personally. The second P is pervasive. Pervasive. Okay, we're in a bad situation or we actually did do something wrong, but, but then we apply it to everything. Of course this is happening to me because I'm no good at anything. I've failed at everything before. I can't do everything right. Everything I touch is just messed up. Of course that isn't true, but our mind goes there. And once it does, it's easy to fall into the third P. Permanent. Permanent. Not only is this situation my fault and everything is bad, but it's never going to change. This is my life now. It's never going to get any better. There's no hope. Personal, pervasive, permanent. That's a pattern I've been through too many times. Maybe you're stuck in this cycle right now. If you are, reach out to someone who can share a different perspective, help you see things differently. Or contact the chapel and we can connect you with a counselor who can help. The first step to breaking this cycle, though, is to recognize that it's just not true. Whatever situation you're in, it's not all your fault. And you're not bad at everything, and it won't be permanent. We can avoid this downward spiral completely if we just remember to follow Jehoshaphat's example and pray first. Pray first. Let's pick up the story in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us 
and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? Wow, this is a bold prayer. Notice how Jehoshaphat is praying here, right? This is a great model for us to follow when we are feeling out of control. He's not praying, God, help me or take this away or fix this situation. No, he focuses on God, not on the problem. He focuses on God, not on the problem. And look how he does that. First, he remembers how big God is. Are you not the God who is in heaven? In verse 6, aren't these kingdoms yours? Don't these people report to you? When we take a step back and remember that God is all-powerful and present with us in every situation, we'll start to gain some perspective and our problems will feel smaller in comparison. Second, he remembers what God has done before. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land? God, you brought us here. You, you made all this possible. Surely you're not going to let it fall apart now. And you and I can pray the very same thing. We can remember how God was faithful to us in the past, how he protected and provided for us before, and we can have confidence that he will do it again. I think about the chapel. This church has been here for over 80 years. 80 years. Think of all the people who have walked through these doors. The thousands of children that have been through chapel kids and chapel students. The missionaries who are sharing God's love around the world. Certainly God has great plans to keep building his kingdom through the ministries of this church. And no pandemic is going to stop that. Finally, Jehoshaphat remembers what God has promised, what God has promised. They're in the land that God promised them as an inheritance. And now people are trying to take that away. So Jehoshaphat's reminding them, hey, you promised this land to us. And we can do the same thing when we pray. We can stand on God's promises. Here are just two examples. In Isaiah 41, God promises to strengthen you and help you. When you pray, pray that back to him. God, you promised to help. You promised to give me strength. I need it now. Psalm 32, God promises to teach you the way you should go. Pray that back to him. God, show me what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to go. You promised to show me. I need to hear that now. There are thousands of promises in the Bible from God to you. Just pray them back to him. So when you find yourself in a difficult situation, start by praying first. And when you do that, focus your prayers on God, not on the problem itself. Verse 12 takes us to our third point. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. 
We have to get to the point where we admit we are powerless. We need to say, I am not God, you are. And we are waiting for you to fix this situation. That's what Jehoshaphat is doing here in verse 12. He's basically saying, I don't know what to do. And even if I did, I don't have the strength to do it. That's a hard thing to say, especially when you're standing in front of all the people counting on you for an answer. They're expecting their king to know what to do. Leaders are supposed to lead, right? And Jehoshaphat doesn't have a clue. There have been several times during this pandemic where God has humbled me, where he placed me in a situation where I did not have the answer. And when you've built a career on finding solutions and getting things done, that's a very uncomfortable place to be. When people are looking to you to know what to do next, and you have to tell them, I have no idea. It's just not fun. But I believe with all my heart that God takes us to those places for a reason. And the more competent and confident you are, the more challenging the situation will be. And here's why. God is more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. God is more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. He wants us to be men and women who rely on him alone, and he's willing to stretch us to make that happen. Think about it. If it had just been one army attacking, how would Jehoshaphat have responded? Chapter 17 tells us he had built up the army and strengthened the border. If only the Ammonites were attacking, he might think, I can handle this on my own. I could take them. Maybe even two armies. Okay, a little more challenging, but we can do it. But now with three armies working together and already right there in his backyard, God has his attention. I totally believe that God will stretch us to the point where we have to admit we're powerless and we can only rely on him. And that is right where he wants us. That's why when the Apostle Paul went through difficult times and was struggling with a personal attack, God said to him, Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. We need to admit that we're powerless to fix our situation on our own, because that is when God will show up. Listen to what happens next. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. So God's word comes to a priest who's from a long line of priests. He said to them, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. 
Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Amen to that. God is saying the same thing to you right now, no matter what situation you find yourself in. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the battle is not yours, but God's. We only realize that when we focus on God and admit that there's nothing we can do on our own. Amen. For the sake of time, let me just summarize the rest of the story for us. The next morning, Jehoshaphat gathers his army and marches out to the desert to face the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Meonites. But he takes some of the men and puts them in front of the army. And he tells them to sing to the Lord and to praise him as they march. I kind of like that, right? Put the worship team out there in front of everybody else. Let them go first. Well, as they climb the hill overlooking the battlefield, they get to the top and they look out on the desert and all they see is dead bodies. God had caused the armies of the Ammonites, Moabites, and Meonites to turn on each other and to fight each other, and no one had survived. Jehoshaphat and the army of Judah never lifted a sword. They didn't have to do anything. They never broke a sweat. It took them three days to gather all the plunder, all the weapons, equipment, everything of value that was left behind. Three days. God had given them this great victory out of his love and mercy for his people, just as they trusted him, just as they had trusted him to do. He gave that to them, just as he gives us salvation freely through the death of his son on the cross. We don't have to do anything to earn that. It's a gift from him, just as this great victory was a gift to Jehoshaphat and his people. Look at verse 29. The fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for as God had given him rest on every side. How great is that? They went from being completely surrounded to having peace on every side. And we can look forward to the very same thing. God wants us to be at peace he promises to give us peace. But let's not miss that first point. The fear of God came on the surrounding kingdoms after they had heard what happened. Letting God fight your battles is a testimony to those around you. When people know what you're going through and they hear how God has provided and saved you, that could be what draws them closer to him. Letting God fight your battles can be a testimony to those around you. Well, Jehoshaphat knew that there's something powerful about worship music when we're facing a battle. So let's enjoy one more song from our worship team, and then I'll come right back. 